I'd like to have you turn to Ezekiel chapter 33 this morning. I think most of us would be able to say without any question that uh, this has been a rough month and a half. Not only for us as El Pasoans, but even more specifically for us here in the church. I had, uh, I had planned to uh, take some time off in, in August, and of course, that wasn't possible with everything that was going on. In that time, of course, we've, we've actually had a number of, uh, of uh, family members from our congregation that have, uh, that have passed. And um, that's painful in itself. I've been trying to take some time off here in September, uh, but uh, it, it hasn't seemed to, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the engine hasn't been there to kind of get it happening, which is okay. It's okay. This past Friday, while we were uh, actually attending a, a funeral for Marisa Hernandez's father who passed away last week. Uh, actually, almost two weeks ago, but the services were this past weekend, uh, Thursday, Friday. On Friday, when we were together in their home, uh, I'd received a, a text. And one of our, fo our former members, Patty uh, Slayman, who's a dear sister in Christ, uh, who had cancer, she was in hospice care and wasn't doing well. And if the text said, you know, if, if, if you want to see her, you need to do it pretty quickly because she may pass soon. And uh, I just felt prompted of the Lord to go and see her. And I spent time with her husband, Monty, and both of them have been very dear brothers and sisters in Christ and, and friends of this ministry and participants in this ministry. Uh, I was able to see Patty's son, Aaron, who I hadn't seen in years. He kind of grew up here with us. And, and uh, I, was, I was thankful to have the time to pray with them and to, to be with them. And, and then yesterday, uh, in preparation for this message, the Lord, having already put on my heart what I'm going to be speaking about today, uh, we were having a conference here, a security conference, and so I was trying to be in and out a little bit of you know, what was going on here. I received a call from my niece in, uh, in Mobile, Alabama, that uh, her grandson, uh, little Jordan, who was uh, five years old, he was born right after my brother had passed away in Mobile back in 2014. But he was born with, with a number of uh, birth defects. And, uh, it, it was a real rough time for the family. When he was born, they thought they would lose him immediately. 
they said, well, if he lives, he, doesn't, he won't live long. Well, he lived five years. But I got the call yesterday that uh, Jordan had, uh, had died. And my, my niece was, of course, very distraught. She had handed the phone to a sheriff's chaplain, and he spoke to me. And, uh, of course, I'm a sheriff's chaplain as well. So we had a connection there, and we talked about what was happening and what needed to be done. So that wait continued. But at the same time, it it was obvious that the Lord had put on my heart what I needed to speak about today. So... I think we would all agree that whether people that have died in Christ are certainly in the presence of the Lord today, that doesn't take away the, the burden and the pain that we have. And not so much a sorrow like the world, it isn't that. But we sorrow for their not being present with us. And it takes a while for us to understand that. So the Lord put this passage on my heart. And uh, I'm going to apologize in advance that I'm going to talk a lot about myself. I don't like to do that. But just for a little while, I have to mention some things. The text is verses 10 and 11 of Ezekiel 33. Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel, thus you shall speak. Now these are the words that Ezekiel is to say to them. Thus you speak, saying, if our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, in other words, we are dissolved in them, we are destroyed in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now understand this before we go on. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked because he has no pleasure in the death of anyone. Please understand that. But here he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's speaking of his own people. And he says, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Father, give us wisdom through the power of your Holy Spirit. And in your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a maxim or a, a saying, if you will, that I've heard stated by a number of seminary professors and pastors and ministers that cautions against mentioning in a message or a sermon the phrases, I believe or I think. Now, I understand the reason from a hermeneutical position. Uh, a herme- a hermeneutics is, is really the study of or the, or the examination of, of uh, uh, or the methodology of, of uh, interpreting the text, in, in particular the text of Scripture. So I understand uh, what that means when they say, you know, we shouldn't use the terms I believe and I think. Uh, we're not here. In other words, 
uh, at this or that pulpit to offer our opinion or of what the scriptural text says to us. In other words, we're not to say, I believe this means this, or I think this means that. But we are to proclaim the truth of the word of God after much prayer and much study of the biblical passage being presented, preached, and delivered under the power of the Holy Spirit and in the authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is how the word is to be presented. All that being said, you as a congregation should be given the opportunity and the privilege of knowing that as the pastor of this assembly of believers, Calvary Chapel of El Paso, I do believe and I do think. Praise the Lord for that. I do think. I believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, every word. I believe in the power of Christ to save us from our sins because he came to do just that on our behalf. I believe all of these things. But I also think I have a mind and I have a heart. I have the ability to think and to process information with the brain and the mind that the Lord God gave me. And I have the capacity in my innermost being to be compassionate and loving with the new heart that Christ has given me. And now, I also have opinions and views that I pray are shaped and established by God's word and by God's Holy Spirit. Now this message that I am presenting to you today is not so much about my opinions or thoughts about the subject of death. I do, however, want to explain and express its effects on me personally and its strong meaning to me as I examine God's word in light of the present prophetic landscape that has revealed strongly the soon return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why I've entitled this message, The Heart of God in Prophecy. In 35 years of pastoral ministry, and the better part of 17 years serving in law enforcement chaplaincy for the El Paso Police Department and the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. I have seen a lot of death. Aside from two visits to New York City after 9-11, I can still remember vividly the first call that I had as a chaplain with the El Paso Police Department in 2002. And subsequently, nearly every call I've had since, which involved the loss of life, either by natural causes, traffic fatalities, or under suspicious circumstances. In a word, let me say that law enforcement chaplains aren't called to go have fun. Something has happened. Something traumatic has happened either to someone in the departments or someone in the community. I can still remember the faces of many family members over the last 17 years. 
And if I include the pastoral ministry here for 35 years, visiting family members in their greatest times of grief, I can remember. A lot of times I remember details. I can't, I can't even tell you what I had for lunch yesterday, but I can tell you what happened 17 years ago in a house on Yandel Street, four days after Christmas. I've sat with children and spouses who were in shock, passing through every phase of traumatic grief. I gently embraced a mother who wouldn't let go of her dead baby. And I just sat with her and talked to her and tenderly waited with her for the medical examiner to come. And with God's help, she was able to let go. It's hard to detach from these experiences. In fact, I have actually asked the question, why me? Not somebody else. Why me? I don't share any of these things to prompt or elicit any sympathy. The Lord has called. The Lord has equipped. He's prepared and he's promised to be with his servant without ever leaving or forsaking me. For this I am eternally grateful. But there are two reasons to speak on this issue. One being that death does weigh on us as, as people. It does weigh on us. It is painful. It is loss. It is unrelenting. Death was not what the Lord intended for his creation. All that he created was good. In fact, when you read Genesis 1 verse 31, after six days of creating all things in the universe, it tells us here that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Very good. Death was not a part of any of that. Death came into this world through the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, who was cast out of heaven as one who considered himself worthy of praise and high standing and that above the God who created him. In fact, at one time he was called Lucifer. As we read in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Light bearer is what Lucifer means. How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? 
For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. The five I wills of Lucifer. And yet, God says, thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Always remember this, hell was not created for us. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, his demons. But it was this pride that would be introduced by the serpent in the garden to cause the man and the woman created by God in, in the perfect environment of the garden to, to break the Lord's command upon them. And, and in particular, remember this, that when God gave this command, this one command in the garden, it was given only to Adam, only to the man. Which says a lot about the responsibility that the man was to take with anything that God gave him. The command was this in verses uh, 16 and 17 of Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, notice that, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou, directly to Adam, thou shall surely die. And that being said before, woman was created by God from the side of man, the rib of man. One commandment. But we're told about the presence of this serpent in verse one of chapter three. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said? Did God really say the things that he said? That you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did he really say that? Now, do you notice how crafty the, 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 that Satan is? The commandment was given to the man. The woman who was taken out of the sight of the man only knew what the man had told her. How important was it that he give her the proper information to know that if you eat of this one particular tree, this wonderful life that God has given you will end and you will die. And you'll die in your sin. Satan goes directly to the woman. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. She kind of added that part. Lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, calling God a liar. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. But this was all deception. 
It was all doubt and it was all lies. To make a long story shorter, two significant points were made after they partook of that fruit. They saw it to be beautiful. They saw it to be something that would be probably very, very tasty. But it also had some qualities that the enemy said, oh, listen, don't you want to be like God? To know good and evil. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And they partook of it. From that moment on, they began to die. And we know about God meeting them and walking with them, looking for them later on to find out, where are you? And they, well, we're hiding because we're naked. How'd you know you were naked? You ate of the tree. But as I said, to make the long story shorter, I think I just made it longer. But to make it shorter, two significant points were made. The promise of Messiah and the picture of Messiah's mission. The promise of Messiah and the picture of Messiah's mission. Genesis 3 verse 15 says, I will put enmity. Now this is God speaking directly to the serpent and in effect speaking directly to Satan. He said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed, plural, and, the, and her seed, singular. Very important point. That singular seed is the seed that would become the Messiah through the line of David, who is Yeshua, Jesus. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the promise of Messiah. Right in the garden, right where sin took place. Right where death was now planted in the garden. But in verse 21 of Genesis 3, this is when God speaks to Adam and his wife. And in effect, he's not speaking to them, but he does something for them. This is the picture of Messiah's mission. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Here's the mission of Messiah. To come and cover our sin. So this should be the first hint of God's love and compassion for his highest creation. Those that were made in his image. Death and the shedding of blood were implied for the covering of sin. It would not be a stretch whatsoever to say that the skins that were used by the Lord for man's covering came from a lamb. No stretch whatsoever. Think about the first Passover in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. Think about the very fact that God commanded them to take a lamb, a pure lamb, spotless and without defect, to take that lamb and really to kill it and to take its blood and to apply the blood on the doorposts and lintel of, of, of the house. Because God would be passing over. And if the blood was not applied, then judgment would come upon the house. And death would come. And by the way, the covering that the Lord gave to Adam and Eve, the animals, the lambs didn't have a zipper. 
they had to be killed. To be skinned. And the skins applied to cover their nakedness. To cover their sin. Now how significant is it that now through death, life would come. The Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 57, a, a text that gives us some details about the rapture of the church. Here he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to die. He came to shed his blood. He came to take our place on the cross. He came to do what we ourselves could not do because we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Keep your finger here. I'm coming back to, a second, uh, to 1 Corinthians 15. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Let me add this. In verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He has abolished death. When he died on the cross, when he was buried, and when he rose again from the dead on the third day. And he has given us that promise of resurrection. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we who believe in Jesus Christ will be given new life, eternal life. And even if these bodies die, we shall live forever. Our spirits will be alive because of Jesus. So getting back to 1 Corinthians, go up to verse 20, if you will, because here Paul says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. Jesus died, but he's risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Those who died believing in Jesus Christ, he's the first fruits for them. But notice verse 21. For since by man came death, what man? The one who was responsible, Adam. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. Which man is that? Jesus. How do we know that? Next verse. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all 
be made alive. So that is the first reason for our needing to understand this issue of death, why it even exists. But it is a second reason concerning this issue that that all the more prompted me to address death today. And and I want to begin by asking you a question. Is Is the Lord being misrepresented when it comes to the issue of death in current prophetic studies? Is the Lord being misrepresented when it comes to the issue of death in current prophetic studies? As we have been going through the Minor Prophets on Wednesday evenings, there are considerable statements made by the Lord to His people through the prophets concerning His judgments upon them. Well, what did they do? They disobeyed God. They were rebellious against God. They worshiped idols. They were doing everything that God said that they weren't to do. So God had to judge them. And the language of judgment is very hard. And it's very harsh. But he also speaks of judgment upon his people as well as upon the heathen nations or all the other nations. So when speaking, let's say, for example, when speaking of the coming of the day of the Lord, what we call the tribulation period or the great tribulation time of seven years, when speaking of that coming day of the Lord, the prophet Joel describes it this way in chapter 1, verse 15 of his prophecy. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand and as a destruction from the Almighty Shall it come? If you just read that one verse, you'd say, oh my God, God is is the Almighty who's going to bring destruction. Or you look at verse 2 of chapter 2, a few verses later, a day of darkness and of gloominess. This is what that day is about. A day of clouds and thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there have not been ever the like, neither shall any more after it, even uh, to the years of many generations. I mean, you were saying, well, God is going to bring judgment. If we isolate these particular verses, we would have this kind of conception about God being just an angry God. Look at Joel 2, verse 31. And don't move from there because we're going to see the next verse also. But look at verse 31. It says, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. You know, I I was having these these thoughts as I'm looking at this and reading this. Of course, I've had them as I've I've been going through all the minor prophets on Wednesday night. But, but, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, man, you know, people have this idea that God is like the wizard of Oz. You walk into some room or temple and then you see this huge image, you know, that says, I am the great and powerful Oz. And then a little dog, you know, comes and pulls a, you know, a toto, I think, you know, pulls the curtain back and there's this little guy there controlling all these knobs and whistles and whatnot. Is that our God? Yes, God is a a God who's a a just God. Yes, he is a righteous God. He's a holy God. But I mentioned a hint back in Genesis 
when God covered the man and the woman. That's a hint. The show of God's heart. The show of God's compassion. And the love for his people. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in the Mount of Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. God is a merciful God. God is a gracious God. Is he a just God? Yes. Is he angry at sin every day? Yes, the Bible says that. But is he a merciful God when one cries out and says to him, Father, forgive me. God, forgive me for the sins that I've committed in my life. Is he not a God of compassion? One reason many churches no longer teach or preach end-time prophecy and the coming of the Lord is that they have been and are being misled and being mis misinformed and eventually they will, they will misrepresent the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I have one question to ask you. Is God still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Of course he is. Then why is it that so many people today are saying, well, you know, God you know, has, has forsaken Israel? Has he really? How about reading the scriptures? How about reading the fact that he's going to restore Israel? In fact, he promised that he was going to put the people back in the land. Has he done that? He's doing it right now. And he's done it since, 19, since before 1948. Israel is a living prophecy of the end times. Because God loves his people. But these churches today, they no, some of them no longer support, if they ever did, the nation and the people of Israel. In fact, they'll label Israel as the oppressors and the occupiers of the Palestinian people, who are now considered the downtrodden and the persecuted and the mistreated. Are they not aware that the Palestinian leadership does not want peace? Aren't they aware that they, all they want of Israel is to overrun them, to overpower them, and to destroy them? This is what they want every day. Israel has sought peace. The enemies have not. Do you know that today in, in, in some parts of, of the Palestinian Authority that they print out maps that don't even have the name of Israel on them. It's all called Palestine. Palestine was a name to degrade the Jewish people. And sadly, much of the church has become anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, and pro-Palestinian. Church needs to wake up. Some churches need to wake up, but you know what? 
Other churches need to stay faithful to God's word and to God's people because there's a promise. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Let's not forget that the Lord has made a unilateral covenant with Israel through Abraham, a covenant that the Lord will never break. Genesis 13 says in verses 14 and 15, The Lord said unto Avram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes and look for, from the place where thou art, northward, southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and notice, <clears throat> and to thy seed forever. Forever. And it is in Genesis 15 that the Lord performs both sides of the covenant with Abraham for all the land that he would give to Abraham's seed. God took care of both sides of the covenant. All Abraham could do was either watch or sleep. <laughs> could do nothing else. God did it because God knew that it would be hard for them to keep their side. God's people would still undergo many challenges to their faith as well as to their own commitment to the Lord. The universal, or I should say the unilateral covenant was secure, but, but there would also be commandments and there would be ordinances given to the Jewish people to keep and to follow with consequences both fruitful and frightful. Fruitful consequences and frightful consequences. You do know that consequences are already, aren't always bad, right? For example, when God said, if you obey me, I'll bless you. That's a good consequence. If you don't obey me, I'm going to curse you. That's a frightful consequence. Well, listen to the Lord himself in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. Listen to what he says to Israel. <clears throat> in effect, what we need to understand here is that each and every one of us in this room has a choice to make. Many of us have made that choice. I hope that none leave here today without making the right choice. But this is what he says. See, I have said before thee uh, this day, life and good, death and evil. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, and his statutes, and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply. That's a good consequence. And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But here's a but. But, verse 17, if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. In other words, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore. Isn't this a nice big hint that God is giving them? Therefore, choose life. That both thou and thy seed may live. 
that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and that thou mayest obey his voice and, and that thou mayest cleave or cling unto him for he is thy life. Boy, if more people would understand that God is our life. You know, all of us here have physical life. I mean, we all look awake this morning for the most part. We all look alive this morning for the most part. We all probably have a pulse right now. I have to check my watch sometimes just to make sure. But yeah, I do. I have a, a pulse, you know. But it isn't that kind of life that God is saying alone. He's also given us spiritual life. That we need to understand and guard. For he is thy life and the length of thy days. Each of us will have a different length of day. We won't have exactly the same day. Length of day anyway. But we will have the same life. You remember something that Jesus said? In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is our life. Colossians chapter 3, we've talked about it also. That he is our life. And here he says, For he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto the fathers, to thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. If, 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 if these things were not important to us today, we should just rip them out of the Bible. But God would not have us to do that. He's not done with his people. That is why he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But going back to the earlier part of Deuteronomy, the Lord makes a statement that needs to be embraced by those who cannot see the heart of God's love and compassion for his people. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Go back there now, verses 6 through 8. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. Which means you are a separate people. God has separated you. He has set you apart from the world and set you apart unto himself. That's what it means to be holy. When we sing songs that say holy hands are lifted up to the Lord, we think, oh, I, I can't lift my hands up because I'm not holy. But, you, but, but yeah, if God has separated you for his work, than you are. And we offer ourselves unto the Lord. We surrender ourselves. You know what surrender is, right? Uh, what are we doing? We're surrendering ourselves to the Lord. He has set us apart. So he says, Thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. That is pretty special. They're not writing the script about themselves. God is writing this about them. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. There was no condition here. Notice this, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. That was it. The bottom line, but because the Lord loved you. Because he would keep the oath. 
which he had sworn unto your fathers. God keeping that unilateral covenant that he made with Abraham. Has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt? This brings us back to our text in Ezekiel. Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus you speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? While much of this passage, along with a number of chapters in Ezekiel, focuses on the responsibility of the watchman to warn the wicked that they are going to be judged, these two verses here give telling evidence that the Lord does not want to judge. The Lord does not want to judge. Let's say it again. The Lord is not the, the, the God, God is not the God of death. He's the God of life. He does not want to judge. In fact, the prophet Isaiah makes a, an interesting comment in, in Isaiah 21 verses, uh, well, verse 21. Uh, but verses 21 and 22, I want to read them to you because I want you to see what, what Isaiah calls God's judgment. It says, For the Lord shall rise up as in the Mount Perazim. He shall be wroth or, or, or angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work. Notice those two words, strange work. And bring to pass his act, his strange act. Now therefore be ye, be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption, which by the way means a, a, a destruction, a coming destruction, a coming judgment, even determined upon the whole earth. What is he calling God's judgment? It's a strange work. Why? Because God doesn't want to judge them. He wants to save them. He wants to save his people. He's urging his people to turn to him and accept life. To meet the Jews' cry of despair, which is verse 10 of our text in chapter 33, the Lord, through Ezekiel, encourages them by assurance that God has no pleasure in their death, but that they should repent and they should live. Consider that even in the New Testament, this principle is very much true, especially in the context of prophecy. Second Peter chapter 3 is a chapter that, that involves prophetic language. It begins with certain people mocking and uh, scorning those who say that of, of Christ's near return. Where's the promise of his coming? 
But then we get down to verse 8 where it says here, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That's prophetic. Prophetic language. But notice his next verse, his next phrase. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is that? That's the heart of God in prophecy. Folks, God is not schizophrenic. He's not schizophrenic. One day judgmental, the other day loving and kind. God is always God. Hard to understand with these finite minds of ours. But we can understand one thing for sure, how much God loves us. You want to know how much God loves us? He sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for you and me. Some may ask the question, who cares if my soul is lost? Who cares? Well, the Lord does. The Lord cares greatly about your soul. David knew this well, even though he himself posed the question this way, and, and, and actually doesn't pose the question, he really makes the statement. There in Psalm 142, it tells us that he, you know, there David writes this psalm when he's in a cave. He's being, being hunted and chased by Saul. And he says in verse 4, I looked on my right hand and beheld but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. You ever feel that way? That nobody cares for you? I mean, we, we can sometimes get into that place where we, we just say, man, nobody really cares about me. Well, people do care. But not like we need sometimes. But notice that David said, I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. And oh, how God dealt bountifully with David. I don't know where my notes went. They disappeared. There they are. Okay. <laughs> I was flicking too much here. Let me get back to where I'm supposed to be. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, again, to substantiate God's heart. Paul said, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God isn't like the God that some people believe in, that he has chosen some people for salvation and he's chosen others for damnation. We call that classical Calvinism. God has chosen some for salvation and others for damnation then we need to go into the Bible and throw out the word whosoever. Remember the words of Jesus? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is what we need to know about our God. And this issue of death. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, nor in the death of the saint, except for one thing. In Psalm 116, verse 15, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And may I encourage you to understand that what he says is precious and valuable in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We are valuable to God that even in death we're precious to him. What's even more precious is that when we leave this earth, we'll be in his presence. I want to leave you with the words of, a, of an old hymn. I would sing it, except I'd get too emotional and I'd just kind of stop singing. So I might as well just read it to you. It's called, Does Jesus Care? It has been on my mind and heart all weekend long. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares.